Hello, everyone. Welcome to session 10 in our study of Esther. Today, we're discussing chapter 5, verses 6 through 14 in the CSB. Now, as you remember, Esther has invited King Ahasuerus and his royal official Haman to a banquet. And we know that Esther invited them both because there's something extremely pressing on her mind. Because of Haman's actions, her people, the Jews, were set to be destroyed in a few short months. And so she planned to plead with the king to grant them mercy. However, when the king and Haman arrived at the banquet, she decided not to make her request yet. And in verses 6 through 14 of chapter 5, it says, The king asked Esther, Whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you want, even to half the kingdom, will be done. Esther answered, This is my petition and my request. If I have found favor in the eyes of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and perform my request, may the king and Haman come to the banquet I will prepare for them. Tomorrow I will do what the king has asked. That day, Haman felt full of joy and in good spirits. But when Haman saw Mordecai at the king's gate, and Mordecai didn't rise or tremble in fear at his presence, Haman was filled with rage toward Mordecai. Yet Haman controlled himself and went home. He sent for his friends and his wife Zeresh to join him. Then Haman described for them his glorious wealth and his many sons. He told them all how the king had honored him and promoted him in rank over the other officials and the royal staff. What's more, Haman added, Queen Esther invited no one but me to join the king at the banquet she had prepared. I am invited again tomorrow to join her with the king. Still, none of this satisfies me, since I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate all the time. His wife Zeresh and all his friends told him, Have them build a gallows seventy-five feet tall. Ask the king in the morning to hang Mordecai on it. Then go to the banquet with the king and enjoy yourself. The advice pleased Haman, so he had the gallows constructed. So rather than making her request right then, Esther invited the king and Haman to another banquet the following day. Now, it begs the question, why another banquet? I mean, why not just make her plea right then? I mean, you can feel the tension rising. She didn't make her request when she went before the king in his throne room. And now at the banquet again, she refused to make her request. Why the delay? Well, as we're going to see, this was another God-ordained moment. Commentators suggest that God put it in Esther's heart to delay her request because of what happened during the night between the first and second banquet, when the king discovers that Mordecai saved his life. So I hope you'll join us next time when we're going to have the opportunity to, dis to discuss that event in greater detail. Now, scholars say that Esther's actions here were quite out of character for her. And I agree. I mean, this is the second time that the king asked her to make her request, and she still refused. Now, granted, she did so in a very gracious and tactful way, but as we have learned, the king, he is very temperamental and impatient. I mean, she was taking a risk by not responding to his question right then. And I don't believe that this is the kind of boldness that one would expect from Esther, I mean, what we've learned about her so far is that she appeared to be a very demure, quiet, unassuming person who kept to herself and followed the rules. Yet God called her to do something that seemed totally out of character for her. Stand up to the king and Haman and save her people. Why would he do that? I mean, why would God place a call in someone's life that is so against their natural tendencies 
so beyond what they can accomplish on their own. I believe God chose Esther for this monumental feat because he knew she would do it. God did not choose her because she was the smartest or the bravest or the strongest. He chose her for her willingness to say yes. We can sometimes be apprehensive about following God's way because we don't think we have the skills necessary to do the job. I don't think Esther had all the skills that she needed to perform the task assigned to her. I mean, she wasn't this great persuasive orator or schooled in the politics of, I mean, the nuances of politics. But see, God doesn't need our skills. He's got plenty. What he desires is a heart that is willing and humble and one that trusts him enough to follow him anywhere. So the question is, will we say yes? Will we say yes, Lord? Wherever you lead, I will follow, even if it's to a place that is frightening, even if it's to a place that seems like too much for me, too much for me to handle, I will follow you. Because we can have the assurance that even if we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we don't have to be afraid because God is with us. He will comfort us. He will restore us. His goodness and love will follow us all the days of our lives. The shadow of death was certainly over Esther and all the Jewish people because of Haman's horrible law, but she still followed God. I believe because she trusted him to do the impossible. Are you trusting God to do the impossible? Are we trusting God to do the impossible or do we say, no, I don't think so. I could never do that. I mean, that's too scary. That's too hard. Or that's way too much of a long shot. We must trust that as one commentator said, God will give us the grace to live beyond our capabilities. So in verse 9, Haman left the banquet feeling pretty proud of himself. And why shouldn't he? I mean, being the only one invited to a banquet with only the king and queen in attendance, that was a unique and tremendous honor. He was in high spirits until he saw Mordecai, Mordecai the Jew at the king's gate. And he didn't rise or show fear at Haman's presence. Mordecai's actions enraged Haman. Even though he knew that all the Jews were set to be annihilated in a few short months, but that wasn't enough for him. You see, this is what happens when seeds of anger and bitterness are allowed to grow in a person's life. It's ironic, though, that Haman was enraged at Mordecai for not bowing down in chapter 3. And here he's enraged that Mordecai didn't rise up. I mean, is there any pleasing this man? So why? Why didn't Mordecai rise up in Haman's presence? I mean, he knew that Haman was the one who enacted this law to put him and his people to death soon. Yet he still refused to show fear. Why? Well, remember what Mordecai said to Esther in chapter 4, verse 14? Deliverance for the Jews will come. If not from Esther, then from someplace else. Mordecai's confidence was in God. What a dichotomy between Haman and Mordecai. I mean, Haman appeared to be the one with the upper hand. He had all the power. Yet he was filled with rage, bitterness, and dissatisfaction. And Mordecai, who appeared to have no power at all, fearlessly and courageously stood, or sat, for what was right. But you see, that's the difference that following the Lord can make. 
A person without God is easily tossed around by the events of life because they're not tethered to the truth. Haman had everything the world says brings happiness, yet he still wasn't satisfied. This one small event with Mordecai completely devastated him. And Mordecai, who was facing the destruction of himself and everything he held dear, showed courage and confidence because he trusted God's word. Jeremiah 23.3 said that God would preserve a remnant of Jewish people and that they would flourish. And Mordecai knew that God would never want us to compromise his standards in order to fulfill his plan. Mordecai didn't know what God's plan was, but he trusted that God had one. That can be kind of hard to do sometimes, though, can't it? Trusting that God has a plan when one day rolls into the next without anything ever changing or progressing. It can feel as though we're walking through quicksand. But we mustn't give up the fight because God continues to fight for us. Deuteronomy 20 verse 4 says, For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you and give you victory. So if God continues to fight for us, then why in the world would we stop fighting the good fight of faith for him? Because as Ephesians 6 tells us, our battle, it is not against flesh and blood. Mordecai's battle was not against Haman, but against the devil's schemes to destroy the Jewish people. So one minute Haman was filled with pride and the next filled with rage. So what did he do next? Well, he did what people who are bitter, angry, and resentful often do, find ways to dull or mask their pain. And as you know, there are innumerable ways to dull and mask pain in our lives. Alcohol, drugs, affairs, etc. Haman masked his bitterness by boasting and building up his ego. Verses 10 through 13 says that he went home after seeing Mordecai, sent for his friends and his wife, and bragged to them about his wealth, his many sons, he had ten, his ranking over all the other king's officials, and the fact that the queen invited him, and only him, to dine with her and the king. But do all these tactics for hiding pain really work? I mean, freely given into our lust may take away the pain temporarily, but it never removes it. Because what does Haman say in verse 13? None of this satisfies me as long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. From the world's perspective, Haman had everything a person could want in life. Wealth, a large family. In Persian culture, having many sons was the greatest proof of manhood next to victory in battle. Every year, the king sent gifts to the man with the most sons. Haman also had power and prestige, yet he still wasn't satisfied. Now, to most of us, that really isn't something we don't already know. I mean, we know that fame and fortune doesn't bring true happiness. And we might think, well, yeah, but that's not what I want. I mean, I'm not asking for fame or fortune. I just like a little more than what I have now. I mean, if I just had a little more, then I'd be happy. But see, wanting even a little more than what we've been given can actually be a more dangerous trap because it isn't blatantly bad. I mean, wanting a million dollars, that's obviously greedy. But wanting a thousand or a hundred, that feels justified. But desiring a million or a thousand, if we think that that's what's going to bring us true happiness, 
then it comes from a heart that is not content with what we have. Rather than trusting God to provide for all our needs in whatever way he sees fit, we're saying we need more. It's so easy to fall into the world's trap that happiness is the most important goal in life. But it's just not. I mean, I'm sorry if I'm stepping on toes here. I mean, my toes are already sore. But God's word is clear. He desires holiness over happiness. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, I mean, Jesus doesn't say be happy because I am happy. No, Jesus tells us to be holy because he is holy. So does this mean that God doesn't want us to be happy and have nice things? Well, of course not. God is a creator of nice things. He created happiness and joy. But true, continuous happiness and joy flow from a life that pursues holiness. When we focus on holiness, being separate, and becoming more like Jesus, then happiness is going to be a natural result. But when our only focus is on happiness, then that's not going to produce holiness in our lives. Haman's prideful pursuit of happiness left him feeling unsatisfied and incomplete. Worldly pleasures will never complete us. Only Christ himself does that. 1 John 14, 6 says, Jesus is the way, he is the truth, and he is life. And when we truly experience all that a relationship with Jesus entails, strength, peace, joy, fulfillment, meaning, then we're going to want to obey him out of an overflow of our love for him. So what did her worldly Haman do with his discontent? Well, he complained to his wife. And how did she respond? Well, you know how people often go to their spouses for wise counsel and advice? Well, Haman's wife Zeresh was the last person he should have gone to for advice. I mean, because in verse 14, she and his friends basically told him, why don't you just kill Mordecai? Have a gallows built that is 75 feet tall so everyone can see it and ask the king in the morning to hang Mordecai on it. Then go to the banquet with the king and enjoy yourself. I mean, this is her best advice. Murder will make you happy. And so the more I thought about this, this advice that Zeresh gave Haman, the more I began to wonder about the nature of their relationship. I mean, what kind of marriage did they have that this would be her best advice for him? And it made me think back to a time when Greg and I were engaged. His church gave us both a wedding shower. Now, at the shower, they had this basket with index cards in it, and everyone was supposed to write down their best marriage advice on those index cards. Now, 30 years later, we still have those cards. And so I read through them a little while ago, and I picked out a couple that I thought gave the wisest and most insightful advice. Now, the first one says, remember to get a card for every important holiday, your anniversary, her birthday, Christmas, Mother's Day, Valentine's Day, Groundhog Day, Liberation of France Day, and Swedish Hog Collars Day. The second one says, learn to bend. Usually it's her way. And finally, now this is the card that I believe is the most foundational. I mean, this is advice that you can truly build a marriage around. Pick up your dirty socks. <laughs> Perhaps if Zeresh and Haman, maybe they could have benefited from such sound wisdom and advice. 
But as it is, Zeresh's bad advice pleased Haman, and so he had the gallows built. You see, anger, resentment, bitterness, and malice, it filters into every area of life. It even affects our relationships. I mean, I'm only speculating here, but do you think that maybe Haman's influence on his wife contributed to her thinking that the best solution to this problem is a public hanging? Haman had become so infected with malice, anger, and pride that this horrible plan seemed like a good plan. It completely disabled him from seeing the situation from the right perspective. I mean, building a gallows 75 feet high and hanging a man just because he didn't pay homage to you? In my mind, it all boils down to pride. British Bible scholar William Barclay said, Pride is the ground in which all other sins grow and the parent from which all other sins come. Now, we may think, well, yeah, but that doesn't really apply to me. I mean, I don't have wealth, power, or fame like Haman did. But the sin of pride is not only about what a person has, but also about what a person wants. As one scholar pointed out, Lucifer became Satan because he wanted to be like the Most High. Eve ate from the Tree of Knowledge because she wanted to be like God. Pride is basically placing our confidence in what we have or in what we want because we feel like we deserve it. Haman's confidence at the beginning of the passage was in what he had, his wealth, position, his power. Then after seeing Mordecai, he fell off his pedestal. Then he placed his confidence in what he could do, kill Mordecai. But neither of these ways is a foolproof strategy. Placing all our confidence in what we have or in what we can do It doesn't succeed because none of this is perfect. Things, position, even people will eventually let you down because nothing and no one is infallible. There is only one who is perfect, one who will never let you down. God is the only one in whom we should place all of our confidence. And the great thing is, is that when we place our confidence and security in him, then we're free. We're free to invest ourselves into our relationships, our jobs, and our tasks, knowing that if they do fall apart, we won't. It will not destroy us because our security is not based in that relationship or that job or those things. We've placed our trust and confidence in Christ. So our challenge for this week is where have you placed your confidence? Have we placed our confidence in what we can see? other people, our finances, our occupations? Or are we placing our confidence in God by pursuing holiness through continuous communication with him and obeying his word? The more intimate our relationship with Jesus, the less room there is in our lives for pride, bitterness, and anger. May a stronger relationship with Jesus be our ultimate goal. Thank you so much for joining me today. God bless you.